gets colder My eyes go thin as I get older Piece in pieces, bloody and bruised I feel so helpless and confused Cause I hear screaming on the left, yelling on the right I'm sitting in the middle trying to live my life calling in, who were on last week's show, Real Heroes. Jason Goodman is a former Hollywood filmmaker and is now an investigative researcher and journalist who recently started the Crowdsource the Truth site on Facebook, and Trish Negron, who is also an investigative researcher and journalist. Last week, they covered a protest in London that was seeking the release of WikiLeaks whistleblower Julian Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy. They also tried to set up an interview with Julian while they were in London. Several weeks ago, Trish and Jason joined up with George Webb in the open source investigation of the corrupt Clinton Foundation. This investigation is exposing the worst criminal scandal of all time in U.S. history. Right now, the biggest story that is being suppressed by the mainstream media involves a spy ring set up in Congress by the Awan brothers from Pakistan and the murder of a Democratic National Committee staffer named Seth Rich after he leaked information from the DNC to WikiLeaks. Jason and Trish will discuss the latest news on those matters today. Um, George Webb began the crowdsource investigation of the Clinton Foundation by following the money because Eric Braverman, former CEO of the Clinton Foundation, who went missing roughly 250 days ago, said to follow the money. Well, Braverman had not been seen publicly for 240 days when Trish and Jason went to London, but he was scheduled to attend a conference in the U.K. last week, and so Jason and Trish attended that conference to verify that he was still alive. George started his investigation of the foundation by looking for rat lines. Rat lines are set up alongside of oil pipelines in every country that the U.S. goes to war against, and they are used to traffic arms and drugs. But not too far into the investigation, George found that the rat lines were also being used for organ harvesting and child sex trafficking. All these rat lines are operated by the Clinton Foundation, the CIA, and DynCorp, and are set up in Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Haiti, and many other countries, including all across the United States. George says they now make more money from organ harvesting and child sex trafficking than they were making from the trafficking of arms and drugs. I'll bring Trish and Jason on now to tell us about their trip to London and their attempts to communicate with Eric Braverman and Julian Assange, and they can also give us the latest news regarding Hillary and the sale of the depleted uranium, and also the story about how the FBI set up George Webb to be arrested. But first of all, I want to let these two heroes know how happy I am that they agreed to take time out from their busy investigative work to come on focus on the facts. So welcome to the show, Trish and Jason. Thank How you. How you doing, Evelyn? I'm doing Great good. Great to hear from you Happy again. Happy to have you on. Yes. Thank you so Thank much. You. So, so tell well, us we about your adventure. Uh, yeah, we had quite an adventure in the UK last week. As, as you said, we went there to uh, answer the 
long-standing question of where is Eric Braverman? And, uh, of course, we did see him. Right, Trish? Yes, in the flesh. <laughs> so we were basically stationed at a uh, conference being held in the Blavatnik, uh, the Blavatnik School of Government. And uh, we went there one day into the conference. You know, the, the plans to fly to uh, London all came together very quickly in the uh, in the last moments. And we got there just in time. We received some intelligence that Mr. Braverman would, in fact, be present. And he was. But uh, we ran into some problems. We, we sat down right in the front row in a pretty small breakout room where this conference was happening. Uh, maybe Maybe 30 to 50 people could be accommodated in this specific talk. And uh, before it began, the dean of the school, who I, I believe you pronounce her name, uh, Gare Woods, she came in, and she was very visibly agitated. Wouldn't you say so, Trish? Yeah, she was. She was trembling and clearly very upset. Quite nervous, and she basically attempted to kick us out. And she didn't really give a good reason why. She told us it was because uh, we hadn't attended the rest of the event, although we were not really previously made aware that that was a requirement. In fact, I had actually contacted one of the event organizers, specifically asking if we could make arrangements to interview Mr. Braverman, which, of course, was our intention, you know, purely journalistic, uh, to find out where he's been, you know, why no one has heard from him outside of a couple of uh, tweets here and there. And uh, that request was essentially denied. I did see the woman who I had uh, emailed the request to when we entered, and she didn't indicate that there was any problem with us being there. But um, we found out later that one of our online detractors, someone who is very, very active in trying to disrupt our operation in any way he's able, had uh, sort of organized his own crowdsourced effort to call the school or somehow contact them and ostensibly tell them that we had some kind of nefarious plan to do some harm to Eric Braverman. Or at least that's what we were led to believe. In the days since this has occurred, I've come to have other thoughts as to why that might have happened, but uh, after the conference, we just sort of walked towards Mr. Braverman as he was leaving the room, and he was very uh, quickly whisked out of the room, surrounded by people who quite clearly didn't want us getting near him or talking to him. I personally was physically detained uh, as, Mr. Really? as Mr. Braverman entered in. Yeah. As Mr. Braverman entered an elevator and I attempted to pursue him into the elevator to speak to him, I was physically detained by an Oxford University security guard, sort of a, like a beef eater looking rugby playing kind of guy who grabbed me and held me. And I said, don't grab me. And while he was holding me, the guy said, I'm not grabbing you. So <laughs> Mr. Braverman disappeared into the elevator. And now once again, we do not know where he is. Right. I think it's also interesting to note that even when he came into the room for the talk, he was he came in five to ten minutes late, and he was shuffled right up to the stage without any interaction with others, even yeah. coming into the to the speech. It was very clear that well, they I didn't want us speaking to him at all, and I've actually on, on some of our broadcasts since then. I put out a call to the Blavatnik School and specifically to the dean to contact us and to explain why, uh, even if there were a call, why wouldn't they vet that call? Why would they not take us aside 
ask us, you know, tell us specifically what the call was and check our, uh, you know, credentials and make sure that, you know, obviously anyone could call anywhere and, and say whatever they want. And uh, right. I, I believe we had a right to, to speak to Mr. Braverman and, and ask these questions. So I've come to believe that uh, it's possible that something – more is going on that we don't yet fully realize. And Evelyn, I know you listen to our broadcast, uh, our daily broadcasts on Crowdsource the Truth, the YouTube channel, as well as on, on Facebook. And you've heard me say that I've become convinced, and of course this is just my theory based on the evidence that we have, I've become convinced that Seth Rich is not necessarily dead. Uh, as we as we noted in an interview with Rod Wheeler that uh, George Webb and I conducted several weeks ago, Rod Wheeler, of course, the, uh, the veteran of the D.C. Metropolitan Police, uh, homicide detective for five years, and currently working as a private investigator who was hired by the Rich family to investigate the murder, he told us that there's been no death certificate presented, no autopsy report, no ballistic evidence, no photographic evidence. Three D.C. Metro police who responded were wearing body cameras. None of that footage has been revealed. So none of the evidence related to the murder has been made available. And Rod Wheeler himself said that never happens. So there's literally just as much evidence that Seth Rich may have been abducted or put into some sort of witness protection program or something where he might be in a situation where he's being controlled, potentially his family is being influenced. And there's, there's been a number of things that his family has done that don't seem to make sense if Seth Rich were murdered. I think most people would agree that if a member of their family were murdered and they had the financial wherewithal to hire a private investigator, they certainly wouldn't fire that private investigator before his investigation was complete. And they also wouldn't really uh, prevent the investigator from releasing his report to the public because you'd want that murder to be solved. So these things have occurred, not to mention many of the members of our crowdsource, the truth community have pointed out that in video interviews and photographs of the family, Seth Rich's brother Aaron appears to be, not necessarily as emotional as you might expect someone whose sibling had been murdered to be. Now, I'm not accusing the family of anything. I'm just saying if someone did abduct Seth Rich and tell the family, we need you to convince the world that he is, in fact, dead or else we'll kill him, that might explain some of their behavior. And, and I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just saying I'd like the D.C. Metro Police, I'd like the former uh, chief of the D.C. Metro Police, Kathy Lanier, I'd like these people to come forward and show us the evidence, show us the body camera footage, show us the surveillance camera footage that's at the neighborhood that's got a number of digital surveillance cameras, uh, including one in a convenience store that George Webb himself went to, observed the camera, observed the camera's position relative to where the murder supposedly took place, and none of this footage has been presented. Not to mention the doctor at MedStar in Georgetown, where Seth was supposedly taken, Dr. Sava. Well, George has released Dr. Sava's Social Security number, and it also corresponds to someone by the name of Dr. Atelyevich. So there's a number of strange things surrounding this Seth Rich murder investigation that are just inexplicable. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of people have called me a conspiracy theorist for saying that Seth might not be dead. I, that's, that's a non-argument. I, I would welcome those people to present evidence uh, disproving what I'm saying. Well, well right, and, 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 and with Braverman turning up after all this time, you know, I mean, we thought he was dead. Nobody heard from him. We couldn't find him. And uh, right. he turns up. I wanted to ask you, this is changing subject a little bit. On that conference, how many other people were there to watch that conference? Trish, what would you say? How many people do you think were in that room? 30, 40? Maybe 50? 30. Not, it really? wasn't full. Not full. And, you know, the interesting thing that I noticed, Trish, the seats that we were kicked out of in the front row, you can see this in the video on YouTube. They remained unoccupied throughout the conference. Yeah, so really. Really totally inexplicable, the, the, the treatment that we received. It really was disgraceful, and I think that the Blavatnik uh, School of Government, at very least, owes us an explanation. I've been criticized for re requesting an apology from them and from the dean herself, who I've now... Well, and that was the most peculiar part of all, to my mind, was that the dean was the one to come over to us. Mm -hmm. I mean... It, it would seem more appropriate to have someone who was in charge of the facilities right. themselves sure. rather than her. So the whole thing seemed to be almost staged. Just <laughs> bizarre. Certain, yeah. Um, and then I mentioned that what you pointed out, Evelyn, is that there were hardly any people there. It was right. really, to me, to my mind, it seemed almost a show to have like to have put it on and i know they've done it in years past but it was unlike any conference where you brought in people from around the world to speak mm -hmm. so right. um it, it, it just looked like it was thrown together when i seen how they had the seats and everything it just it didn't look like a professional conference to me well i i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say that again this was a breakout room there was another larger more impressive room where the main uh sort of uh, symposia were, were taking place. This was, you know, sort of a smaller section. And uh, I have been to conferences where they've done things like that. It's a very specialized school, and I think it was a legitimate conference, but it was just, it was just so strange. And, and, you know, even the participants in the section we were in, the whole subject was corruption. And they were right, talking right. about how... Sorry? They, they were talking about how when you're the one individual within a deeply corrupt organization, doing the right thing is sometimes very difficult or even impossible. And, you know, it reminded me of the film Serpico. I've spoken about that, where, uh, you know, it's a film about a New York uh, police officer who was a whistleblower in a corrupt precinct in the 1970s, and he's a real guy. He remains alive today. He was shot in the face, and, you know, there's very powerful forces working against whistleblowers in uh, in all regards. And the irony of what was being said is quite amazing. I would encourage people to go onto YouTube and search for Braverman, Blavotnik, and, you know, you can see their live stream. Uh, the gentleman that introduces it opens with a joke where he talks about how he had been working in Sweden until he was hijacked and brought there. And Mr. Braverman smiles in, in what I found to be a very ironic moment. Well, he also um, pointed out how much of the United of how many Americans think our government is corrupted, and it's almost eighty percent. Yeah, and that was also interesting to me that he would 
speak directly to the U.S. government, you know, and then and then each of those panel members spoke about being the lone voice in a corrupt environment where you're not necessarily corrupt yourself, but you're right. so overwhelmed by those forces that you're you're completely neutralized in your mm-hmm. ability to step forward and do the right thing. I was very impressed by Eric Braverman, Trish. I thought he spoke well, and he he looked healthy and confident, and he had a yes. good message. I I mean, I couldn't get past. Did I've you said think this many he made eye contact with you, Jason? Well, I did I think he did during the question and answer period. He looked right at me, and he didn't look at me as uh, as someone who would be fearful that I would do him harm. I mean, I'm about five foot eight. I'm not a very imposing figure in my estimation. And uh, I certainly intended him no harm. He didn't look at me like someone who was fearful of me. He looked at someone, in my mind, and this is just my personal interpretation, he looked at me like somebody who wanted to talk to me but couldn't. And I felt that he was communicating in the subtext of what he was saying. He even brought up a project, uh, I think it was Haiti that he was talking about, where individual citizens could take photographs of disasters and upload them to this website where they would be evaluated by the government. And it seemed like he was talking about a crowdsource project, and I got to think he's aware of crowdsource the truth and aware of George's uh, investigation that started out as where is Eric Braverman. I mean, I've been to his mother's house in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I've got a video on YouTube on the crowdsource the truth YouTube channel called Where is Eric Braverman's Mother? And I mean, I certainly don't mean to intrude on the guy's personal life, but he's directly linked this whole issue of national interest as to whether Russia hacked or he and Seth Rich or someone else leaked information that had a direct impact on the 2016 presidential election. And, I mean, it's not like I'm trolling this guy and trying to, like, you know, go to his mother's house to annoy him. We want to know. Yeah, and, to you know, just to sort of underscore the reason for concern is that John Podesta himself, Right. Eric Braverman as the leaker or, or whatever, however it happens to yeah. the leaks. And he also, in his own email, said he would be in favor of making a, an example of that person. So point, it's right? not as if we brought these concerns out of thin air. I mean, mm-hmm. um, he was... And Trish, you know, you know Evelyn is a huge fan of John Podesta, so this is all... <laughs> oh, yeah, well. oh, yeah, I'm his biggest fan. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just trying to get to the bottom of this, you know, Evelyn. I mean, we're doing legitimate investigative journalism, and we're being thwarted by uh, really incompetent trolls on the Internet. And uh, at the very least, you know, if the school was duped by them, I think they owe us an explanation, and I think they owe us an opportunity. Uh, I, I would invite them to reach out to Mr. Braverman and arrange a Skype phone call or some sort of communication and if everything that I'm saying is wrong, if Eric Braverman is not being uh, controlled or somehow manipulated by uh, agents of John Podesta or the DNC or the Clinton campaign, then I would hope that the dean of the Blavatnik School would uh, use her best efforts to arrange for us to speak with Eric Braverman and, and get answers to some of these questions. Now, the other thing that you brought up that, of course, we were doing while we were there in London after we realized we weren't going to get to, to speak to Mr. Braverman, we redirected our efforts towards, uh, we left Oxford and redirected our efforts towards the city of London. 
where we went to the Ecuadorian embassy. It had been announced that uh, Julian Assange would be uh, speaking on the balcony, and that was, of course, an exciting opportunity, uh, a very rare moment in history to, to see uh, a figure as important as Mr. Assange and the things that he's done to bring truth to light and, and, uh, and, and help democracy around the world. Uh, unfortunately, due to reasons that weren't entirely clear, we, we heard that he was negotiating his possible release from the embassy, but we can't really confirm that. He did not appear that day. We did have a great opportunity. Trish did a wonderful interview with uh, Craig Murray, the former U.K. ambassador to Uzbekistan, and that's also up on the Crowdsource to Truth YouTube channel. And uh, I think people really should take a look at that. Mr. Murray had quite a lot to say. Trish, what do you want to say about that? Oh, that was that was really exciting, and he was he was very gracious. He didn't really want to talk about Seth Rich, but he did to the extent that he said that he he confirmed there was no thumb drive, and that would explain George's theory about those big data transfers. If you recall, mm -hmm. I think on July sixth and seventh. Yeah. I believe, and um, he was also very complimentary about the crowdsource model and how much it's done to, to expose this corruption in a way that is is done with integrity and transparency. So um, that was especially nice to hear because you know you just don't know you don't know if you're doing the right thing and. Um, he was. He he said he felt we were, and he's somebody I certainly respect. So that was great affirmation. It was such a pleasant surprise to hear that he was actually a viewer of Crowdsource. Right. That was amazing. I had no idea that we had that Me kind either. of reach. <laughs> yes. So that was cool. And then you know we went back several times, Evelyn, to uh, to try to reach Julian Assange because again, as you probably know. I became firmly convinced that Julian Assange was trying to communicate somehow with George or, or at least provide George with some direct information in his uh, investigation. Because a, a couple weeks ago, uh, WikiLeaks put out a tweet that was of uh, an email from 2009 or 2008 or 2009, something like an eight-year-old email, that seemed very strange that they would bring this out. But uh, it was related to Nadra. And Nadra is a satellite system in Pakistan, or, or I should say a satellite system in space that's utilized by the Pakistani government to track individuals. And uh, it, it's sort of, according to George, it's sort of a model for what could be happening in the United States right now, uh, where a, a similar sort of system could be utilized to track every single individual in the United States with an accuracy of about 10 feet. And this type of satellite tracking could be used for you know all kinds of things, certainly applications that we can't conceive of right now, but at the very least drone strikes or surveillance, uh, unauthorized uh, tracking, etc. And uh, the implications are quite scary. Uh, if you, if, I, I would certainly encourage your listeners to uh, look for that video. It's called, Is This Real?, and again, it's in the Crowdsource the Truth Library on YouTube, and it's basically George uh, reading this message that I perceive as a sort of coded message to him. The names of all the people in the message, Imran, etc., correlate to the names of the people, the Awan brothers and the various people 
within the narrative of the investigation that George has been conducting for, as you said, over 250 days now. So it's very interesting to see that. Well, and then remember the Molly McCauley uh, oh, right. ties into that. Um, right. And she was killed within days of Seth Rich. Uh, the day before, actually. Right. The day and before. She, she was out. She was a NASA specialist and appears to have been involved in that use of satellite technology. Um, and despite being out walking her two large dogs, which her partner is quoted as remarking that one of them was the strongest dog he'd ever seen, mm-hmm. somebody managed to get close enough to her to stab her. And that was supposedly the injury that uh, killed her. But yet again, not a single witness, not a single lead. Um, you know, we know nothing else. Murders were extremely rare in her neighborhood. Yeah. So, you know, there's another mysterious coincidence that we're trying to further explore. All these strange sort of circumstances surrounding these murders and, and the victims, uh, it's just it's difficult to, to reconcile. So... You know, we continue to look for answers in these cases, and uh, uh, so far, you know, the investigation remains ongoing. Um, what else were we were we going to discuss, uh, Evelyn, that we had uh, t- talked about? Do you recall, we had a couple of topics, but uh, yeah. So, uh, well, oh, well, oh. while we were in London, we also we also were uh, we were sort of targeted for the work that we were doing because, as you know. We have a tendency to live stream a lot of our investigation, and that's really kind of flipping the script on the traditional approach. Rather than keeping all of our activities secret, we try to be very much out in the open. And the thought is, you know, if you're like in the case of, uh, you know, Gavin McFadden or John Jones or Michael Ratner, if you've got this secret network where you're the only ones who have the information, well, certainly if you kill the person who's the only person who has the information, that's a surefire way to prevent the information from getting out. But what we try to do by being very overt with our information, you know, to the greatest extent we can, obviously we want to protect sources and people who need to remain protected, but we feel like shining a light on the investigation itself puts pressure, at least we hope it puts pressure, and I don't want to tempt fate, of course, but we hope that it's, you know, if any harm was to come to us, we certainly have a large community on the Internet that would be aware of it and uh, at least would carry on the investigation. Right. They'd ask a lot of questions, certainly, and it wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to just explain it away with a silly, you know, botched robbery claim. Right, right. And, you know, some of the other things that happened while we were in London, Trish and I were just walking through the streets of London, and we ran into crowdsourced truth community members, people who were actually watching the broadcasts while we were making them. That was amazing. (laughs) It really was. And then Mrs. Harrod recognized us at a later point. So that was really, really cool to meet people who were watching. 
Yeah, yeah. And again, I mean, you know, we don't consider the people that are, are watching the streams and providing us feedback and information, we don't consider them fans. I don't even like to refer to them as viewers. Obviously, if you're viewing, you're a viewer. But these are crowdsourced community members. These are the people that make the investigation happen. They're providing leads. They're providing feedback. They're, they're helping us do intelligence assessments. And what I'm seeing is that every day the community is getting smarter and yeah. learning the process better and understanding more. I mean, you know, we've had uh, people who claim to be journalists criticize us for our process and say that we're conspiracy theorists. Of course, CNN and The New York Times called us conspiracy theorists, which is almost a badge of honor. Uh, George revealed a story. Many people might be aware of this, that uh, there was an incident at the port of Charleston, South Carolina, where George got credible intelligence from a trusted source who has, I mean, I'm not going to talk about where the information comes from, but, you know, these are people that, that don't just call us and make up stories. They're professionals in law enforcement. They're professionals in, you know, high-level agencies. And uh, George had information that uh, loose, illicit radiological material, depleted uranium, and other dangerous substances were being transported on the Maersk Memphis. And as we were talking about it, you know, people were utilizing publicly available tools that allow you to track ships. I think it's called Fleet Finder is one of them, where you can enter the name of a ship and in real time it shows you where it is in the world. And there's another one called Import Genius that allows you to look at the uh, bills of lading to see who is shipping materials on these ships. And, of course, it all comes back to the Awan brothers. And it's these four brothers between the ages of 22 and 36 who are working for Debbie Wasserman Schultz in the IT department in Congress. Imran Awan has been photographed with Bill Clinton. We know from the WikiLeaks emails that he has Debbie Wasserman Schultz's iPad at one point. He has her and password. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's wanted by the D.C. Capitol Police, not the D.C. Metro Police. Wanted by the D.C. Capitol Police for hacking the cell phones, the BlackBerry cell phones of members of Congress, for multiple burglaries in which laptops were stolen. We've seen video where, you know, firsthand testimony from... Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she's threatening Daniel Verderosa, the chief of the D.C. Capitol Police, uh, telling him she wants this, you know, as she categorizes it, missing property. She wants it back. And she, and she, she threatens him with budget cuts and other consequences. Uh, and Chief Verderosa informs her that it's evidence in an ongoing investigation. And, you know, she's essentially obstructing justice right there on camera. Now, Imran Awan is no longer in the United States. He's gone back to Pakistan, where he has a police motorcade that escorts him around. And uh, he's visited the White House many times. Uh, we believe that was to obtain a diplomatic passport. We believe that uh, diplomatic immunity is certainly something that will allow someone to leave the United States, even if they're wanted by the police. We believe that traveling around Pakistan with a motorcade is an indication of diplomatic status. And, of course, George revealed the uh, glaring loophole in the law that allows diplomats to transport things uh, in what's known as a diplomatic pouch. And historically, the diplomatic pouch was essentially a purse, a small handbag that a diplomat could carry personal effects and documents in. 
And over the course of time, that grew to a suitcase and then a steamer trunk. And, and now something as large as a shipping container, which is you know almost the size of an 18-wheeler truck, can be considered a diplomatic pouch. And, and that classification prevents customs from inspecting these packages. They can't even x-ray them. Not to mention that, Trish, you saw some statistics mm-hmm. about the failures at the ports. Talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, they uh, well, in 2016, uh, there was an article about how the failure rate um, among these uh, inspections for radioactive material were at around 30% over the course of the year. And at the same time, the individuals using the uh, detectors did not have know how to use them properly. And when they did get a successful reading, those readings were being transmitted over unsecure um, uh, uh, networks. And uh, in addition to that, in, as recently as December 2016, the Obama administration had identified dirty bombs, just like what Jason was describing, uh, as the greatest threat to our national security. So, of course, of course, the uh, government of Bangladesh uh, issued a report that the, another Maersk ship that was grounded uh, somewhere in Bangladesh they detected exceedingly high levels of radioactive material. So, I found it very strange that you know the New York Times and CNN and uh, various other uh, quote unquote journalists focus their attention on what they consider to be a conspiracy theory or a, or a hoax bomb threat. That was a gross mischaracterization. George, myself, no one in our crowdsourced community called in a bomb threat. We called the authorities to alert them that we had information that, that led us to believe there was a clear and present danger to the port. George detailed the specific containers that should be inspected for diplomatic containers, which contained material that had been shipped by the Awan Brothers shipping. Now, Evelyn, I'm sure that uh, many people from Pakistan and various other countries are extremely industrious, and, you know, they might have a full-time job in the IT department in Congress earning $160,000 a year, the maximum amount you can earn, two and a half times the average salary of a congressional staffer, they might also own 12 homes around the Virginia area. They might also own 25-plus different businesses ranging from car dealerships to mortgage companies to fruit canning companies to shipping logistics companies, and and they might choose to ship 168 pounds of canned food from Canada, where coincidentally the company Uranium One, which uh, if you look at the New York Times, I don't I don't really consider that a a very credible source a lot of the time. But sometimes they are doing legitimate journalism. A lot of people consider it credible, so we can we can reference it here. In 2015, they published an article about how cash flowed to the Clinton Foundation amid a uranium deal, where a Canadian company was sold to a Russian-controlled company. The Canesta Group lobbied on behalf of Uranium One. And, you know, for some reason, 
the Awan Brothers Shipping Company needed to ship this canned food from Canada to Florida on a Maersk seafaring vessel rather than FedEx Ground or UPS or the U.S. Mail. I don't know why they would do that. I don't know why they would ship a, uh, a 2003 model Toyota from Japan to Seattle in 2015 where the shipping costs were greatly exceeding the value of the vehicle itself. Uh, it's been suggested by our crowdsourced community that a vehicle in 2003 wouldn't have a built-in GPS device, and so tracking that vehicle might be more difficult. And, of course, as Trish referred to the uh, Obama uh, administration's reports, hiding radiological materials in cars was something that they identified as a threat, not necessarily George or I. So it's very strange to me what people chose to focus their attention on. And, uh, you know, our, our crowdsourced The Truth community members have been identifying a lot of articles in mainstream sources and just, uh, you know, reporters other than Trish, George, or myself who have been talking about illicit radiological materials and uh, the ease with which they're transported, the difficulty in tracking them. And this depleted uranium situation has become a, a big, big story in the uh, two weeks or so since uh, George brought it up. And, oh, well, I, how could I forget this? The other important factor is many people, of course, have heard that George was arrested. But again, you know, when, when that gets reported by CNN, uh, you know, disinfo Donnie at fake news CNN or the family New York Times, as President Trump would call it, they don't really give you the accurate details. They, they categorized it as DUI, which was not the charge. They don't tell you that someone contacted George and said, hey, you know, I have a tip for you. I know you're working on this or that story, and why don't you meet me over here on this uh, quiet road and off the beaten path at this late, late hour. And George went there and waited for several hours and fell asleep in the car. And somebody told the police that uh, in Zanesville, Ohio, wasn't on a busy road in the, in the middle of a, a major metropolitan area, but the, that uh, George was there, and there were some teenagers around the car or something like that. We really have to talk to George to get the first-hand story. He's discussed it in our broadcasts. But George was uh, incarcerated overnight. I had to go to Ohio and bail him out. The bail was excessively high, given the, you know, the passive nature of the, uh, the infraction. And, uh, you know, even even in placing a phone call to me, it was really an education for me, Evelyn, because I've never dealt with the police in that capacity. I've never had to bail anybody out of jail. I've never even been to a jail before. And, you know, even placing a phone call, you hear that when you go to jail, you get one phone call. Well, okay, but you have to pay for it. And, you know, I didn't realize that cell phones, or at least my cell phone, doesn't accept collect calls. So then I had to, you know, purchase this phone card for $50 on, on a credit card. And I think for a lot of people, an unexpected $50 bill coming out of nowhere, that, that might be the difference between paying your rent that month or feeding your children that month. And it just was, it gave me a lot of insight into some of the real inequities in our criminal justice system and how, you know, by operating within the context of the quote-unquote law, Authorities can really throw up major barriers to people if you start uh, exploring things that they don't want explored or, or doing things that they don't want done, such as uh, investigative journalism and whistleblowing. 
And then Trish and I also experienced a little bit of that in London as well. This is, you know, again, a lot of people get uh, distracted because sometimes these things are complicated and they seem, you know, implausible. But what we're trying to do is break them down. And I see parallels in so many ways. It's like it's almost like they're reading from a script. And, and Trish, you know, you've identified these PowerPoint documents that essentially are the script for these cyber harassment techniques, right? Yeah, I mean, there there is literally a PowerPoint presentation that was put together for our intelligence agencies to use against people, ordinary citizens and journalists, in order to deceive the public about them, to discredit and destroy their reputations. I, I, I mean, that's what... That's what our intelligence agencies are doing, and it's really shocking when you stop and think about, you know, the number of whistleblowers there are out there now who are telling the same stories about, you know, losing their businesses um, or, you know, having their reputations destroyed for having exposed, for example, Gary Webb, who, you know, George Webb sort of used his last name for a pseudonym, um, he was a journalist who had done award-winning work, and when he uncovered the CIA's Iran-Contra drug dealing uh, operation, they literally set out to ruin him. And, and the mainstream media was the key ally they had in their pockets to help them do that. And that's what you saw happen with CNN and George and Jason and the smear campaign that was undertaken once they uncovered this and, and made it public. So it's a, it's a well-rehearsed, very sophisticated, targeted program that you, you can start to recognize when you know that it's out there. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that I've noticed is uh, there are parallels. You know, another thing that George and I have been investigating as well as uh, Dr. Corsi, Dr. Jerome Corsi, and, and many other people, was the use of this NGP van voter database to manipulate the results and, and basically cheat Bernie Sanders and steal votes and steal money. And it's you know the thing is it's not it's not sexy to talk about it. It's it's very esoteric technology that gets into terms that people don't understand. Same thing with Hillary Clinton's email scandal. You know, she says, oh, I use personal email. It sounds like, hey, what's the big deal? She doesn't go into the details that it was not only personal email, but a personal email domain and a personal email server. Now, you cannot unintentionally set up a personal email domain. You don't get out of bed and trip over uh, your, your slippers and stub your toe and automatically set up ClintonEmail.com. That's a very deliberate action that you must do. You don't accidentally pay Brian Pagliano or whichever one of their uh, IT guys to set up a server in your home in Chappaqua. These are all very deliberate actions. And, you know, a lot of the disruption campaign, that you know, the different techniques that are utilized along the lines of what Trish was just discussing, they're done in subtle ways with technologies that the average person really doesn't understand so that if someone like myself tries to explain it or point it out, most people's first reaction is going to be, oh, Jason, you know, you're crazy, and you're not that important that they would target you. Like, here's a really complicated one, Evelyn. I want to try to break it down yet again so that hopefully people will understand it. Our, our productions are all happening with 
uh, readily available consumer tools. We're shooting our videos on iPhones and uh, all that kind of thing. And, you know, when we do a live stream from New York City, I'm just connecting to the regular LTE data network that's currently offered by uh, AT&T or T-Mobile or whoever you might use. If you have an iPhone, you look down, you're either on Wi-Fi or you're on LTE. Now, prior to the inception of the LTE network, there was something called the 3G network, the third generation cellular network. LTE is the fourth, the fourth generation. Now, when we went to London, I purchased an international data plan because I knew we would be broadcasting and I, you know, I wanted to have access to the data network. And AT&T just recently has introduced what they advertise, and, and this is fair advertising, an unlimited data plan, meaning I could be on the data network 24-7, every day of the week, streaming data, downloading videos, uploading videos, whatever I want to do. What they didn't tell me was when you're traveling internationally, you're only able to access the legacy 3G network, which is a lower bandwidth network than the LTE network that I use at home or that a subscriber with a UK phone in the UK would have access to. I had no access in Oxford all over London. We had strong connection to the network, but it was only to the low bandwidth 3G network. And you can see this in the videos that we streamed from London. The Craig Murray video is much lower resolution than the high definition videos that we're normally streaming. And this isn't because of a bad connection. It isn't because of a weak signal. I had a very strong connection to a lower bandwidth network. So all throughout England, we're broadcasting on the 3G network, and uh, that was fine. And we kept sort of announcing our intentions to go to the embassy and try to communicate with Julian Assange. Now, on the third day that we were there, we noticed a lot of uh, sort of nondescript black vehicles, as well as a gentleman in a blue shirt who seemed to be having a really lengthy phone call. And it was strange because that was the one and only time my phone connected to an LTE network in the United Kingdom. Had a full-strength connection to the fourth-generation, high-bandwidth LTE network. But we were totally unable to broadcast video at all. And I believe that is very strong evidence that we were being targeted by a technology called a DRT box, a dirt box. And what this is, is a radio transmitting device that can be placed in a van or a car or possibly even a backpack. And it broadcasts an LTE signal that is sufficiently strong that it overpowers other nearby cellular network signals, forcing the phone to lock on to that 4G LTE signal. And then the person operating that dirt box can control where your data goes and in this case doesn't go, once they've captured your cell phone like that. So uh, it was difficult for me to convey this message to people, and it was actually difficult to even understand what was going on at first, but I feel very confident that that's what was happening, and uh, well, we, we got dirt boxed. When we went back on Saturday, when there were no cars around, you got the live streaming was first try. That's right, that that's right. We got right back onto the 3G lower bandwidth network, and we were able to do a standard definition broadcast right there without problem. So people said, oh, it's the weather. I, I was joking with Trish. There's a Monty Python movie called The Meaning of Life where they have this segment 
called Can You Find the Fish? And everyone in the audience in the film is calling out, oh, it's in his trousers, you know, making ridiculous comments. And that's sort of what we get sometimes when we, when we live stream. We get a lot of people making these random comments that don't make sense, that aren't based in fact. And uh, it's, it's a little bit humorous, but uh, all these technologies exist. And, and, I mean, it's, you know, when, uh, when you're not aware of how a technology works, it can seem like magic or, you know, something that's yeah. not there. Yeah. So, uh, Evelyn, what else did we want to discuss? Uh, we've covered quite a lot of topics there, and we still have some time, I think. Evelyn, have we got you? Have we been disconnected? Oh, my goodness. Are we talking to no one? Oh, wow, Jason. Huh. Well, I don't hear Evelyn. I don't either. Hmm. Let me try calling them back. Should I hang up then? No, no, you stay there. I'll... It's colder My eyes go thin as I get older Piece in pieces Bloody and bruised I feel so helpless and confused Cause I hear screaming on the left Yelling on the right I'm sitting in the middle trying to live my life Cause I can't stop the wall Hello? Hi, when did we lose you there? Well, you didn't lose me. I could hear everything you were saying, but I'll tell you oh, what. Great. A, few, a few times I, I tried to talk, you know, but you just talked over me, so I just thought you didn't hear me. But otherwise, I was, I didn't. I was on the phone. Yeah, I couldn't hear anything either, Evelyn. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So well, I was, I was I'm saying, glad you got to hear what we were saying, but it's interesting. I wonder if you got there, Evelyn. Oh, who knows? I mean, you know, the last few weeks is the only time that my, my lines haven't been messed up on when I report on these things. The same thing. I mean, this is the worst criminal scandal in U.S. history, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm covering it every week, and I'm going to keep covering it every week because this has got to get, be out in the open. The mainstream media is blocking all this, and this is just horrible what our government is involved in, and, and I'm going to keep having these on every week, but I don't know what happened that time. Mm-hmm. Well, we so, but I want to know, um, how is the uh, spy ring in Congress, how is the investigation into that going? Well, you know, uh, on our last day in London, Trish and I went to the Pakistani High Command or High Council. What was it called? High Commission. High Commission, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we made a little mistake. We should have gone there on a day of the week. We were there on a Saturday, and they were closed. We wanted to ask them if they knew Imran and if, uh, if he had a diplomatic passport. So we might have to call them and follow up. But, um, I mean, again, it's, we're, we're always uh, shaking the trees, looking for leads. It's, uh, it's difficult to keep these investigations going because sometimes, you know, you feel like you, uh, you uh, run into dead ends. But... Um, well, they're interviewing Podesta still... today, aren't they, in, in a congressional hearing? Sorry? 
I said they're interviewing John Podesta today, aren't they? In a oh, hearing? I do believe that's correct. Yeah, we've got to go see what sort of uh, nonsense he has to say. Yeah, yeah, but it was going to, but they were going to have it in a closed hearing for him to talk. Now they oh, had, they had Comey, yeah. the FBI director out there testifying in the open, but uh, right. is going to testify in private. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't heard anything that's come out of that yet. No. Yeah, but we're going to have to. We're going to have to down. I, I, I think members of Congress are clamping down on this. Well, it was certainly egregious that uh, Steve Scalise was was shot. What what have we heard about his condition, Evelyn? I, I've been so caught up in everything we've been doing in London, and of course, uh, the members of our crowdsourced community have been in an uproar over what's happened with Robert David Steele's unrigged campaign, where they have been contacting me and telling me that he's been sending them bizarre emails when they try to get their money back, and you know we've got all right, kinds right. of things that we're dealing with. Right. Well, last I heard, he was brought out of intensive care. Him and another guy that was shot, and and of course, here again, he had he had introduced legislation, you know, to stop pedophilia and stop human trafficking, right. And everything. And and uh, Podesta's in there. He tried to get him removed from from his leadership post in Congress. That's Scalise. And uh, next thing you know, that uh, he's shot. You know, yeah. he just he just yeah. put out a video. I think it was a week before on this legislation right. he was, start, you know. But anybody that goes and uses this, tries to stop this pedophile network gets murdered. Yeah, it's true. It's very disturbing. I mean, you know, worst time on earth that they're engaged in. Yeah. And any time anybody gets close to trying to stop it, they get murdered. That's true. And the other thing I'll point out is that, you know, it was only within weeks of Debbie Wasserman Schultz threatening budget cuts and other consequences. Now, Obviously, this is not a correlation, but just a mere coincidence. Two D.C. Capitol Police were, in fact, shot in that incident. That's right. That's very that, is that right? Wow. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, well, the other thing that we should talk about is uh, Jared and Elizabeth Beck, the attorneys that are uh, basically bringing the $300 million DNC fraud lawsuit uh, you know, the, the fraud lawsuit against the DNC, they've received uh, threatening phone calls uh, with a digital voice encoder, but the person making the threatening phone calls failed to disable the caller ID on their phone. And uh, Jared and Elizabeth identified that call as coming from Debbie Wasserman Schultz's office of her at Florida office. So, you know, yeah. this, is, this is serious evidence uh, indicating... Criminal well, they, harassment. They even uh, submitted a request to the court for protection. Protective order, right? All of these violent deaths and the threatening calls, but the court denied it. Yeah, very right. troubling. Cause, very troubling. Because Seth Rich was going to be a witness in that um, in that trial, exactly wasn't he? Right. Mm-hmm. And actually, Chris had the very astute observation, you know, because as I'm, as I'm putting forward this uh, hypothesis that it's possible that Sessrich wasn't murdered, but that he might have been abducted, people have been questioning that by saying, oh, you know, there's no motive to abduct him. And now, look, all I can come up with is I don't know what the motive may or may not be. Trish pointed out that a motive for abducting, abducting him might be to prevent him from testifying. Or exactly to put pressure on his family or anyone else who might know uh, anything about what he knew to also not testify. 
Well, and the thing to remember about Seth Rich is he's referred to all the time as a staffer, but he was much, much more than that. He knew that NGP van data inside and out, and he knew exactly how it worked. So he was, you know, he was deeply involved in that specifically. So, um, yeah. That's right. And, you know, Evelyn, we're going to be releasing very soon uh, a really unique uh, sort of intelligence assessment that uh, we had the honor of being involved in. George and myself met with uh, Dr. Jerome Corsi, who uh, I certainly consider uh, an incredible mind, and uh, a living legend, basically, in terms of his analysis and uh, uh, he takes us through the whole NGP van, the multiple hacks, leaks, you know, all of the computer breaches that took place at the DNC, the Clinton Foundation, et cetera. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really it's an amazing piece of video that I think people are going to watch and study for many years to come. And uh, that's going to be ready in just a couple of days. Right. And then are you, are you submitting that to Congress, to members of Congress? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. It'll be available on YouTube, and I certainly encourage uh, our crowdsourced community members and your listeners and, and anyone who might see it to share it with their representatives. And, you know, that's our goal. It's, we're, we're putting all these videos out, not, not for our own entertainment. We're putting them out because this is, this is the best way we know of that we can get the word out, use the power of social media to, uh, to have a voice collectively. That's right. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I, and I hope I'll get you back next week, too, because we're going to keep on this investigation. You're real heroes. Thank, thank you so, so much, Yes. Yep. Well, people, I hope you learned something this week. I know I sure did, and I keep up with this investigation. We're going to follow. I'm going to keep following it on this show. So we will see you next week. Bye. I'm sitting in the middle trying to live my life.